Welcome to episode 25 of Frank Reactions, where you can learn how to improve customer experience in the digital era, online and off. My name is Tema Frank, and I'm your host. Today, we've got another interview from the Customer Experience Summit. So there will be a little bit of background noise. It picked up more towards the end of the interview, but it's still quite easy to hear. And I think you'll find it's worth it, especially if you work in government or probably if you work in a large bureaucracy. Today's guest, Donna Crooks, is the Strategic Advisor for Citizen Service for the Government of Saskatchewan. And she's the one who was responsible for bringing together some million documents 400,000 web pages, 100 different managers spread out all across the Saskatchewan government, bringing that all together into a nice, clear saskatchewan.ca website. Not an easy task. So I guess they figured she was the right one to tackle the next difficult task, which was figuring out how to make the government work better for its citizens. We've got a whole bunch of stuff that we covered in this interview about how she goes about approaching that, how to win support. And one of the really interesting things, which is that the front lines really, really do want to offer good service, whether you're in government or in a business. They don't want people to be unhappy. They want to offer what the customer, or in this case, the citizen needs and wants. And so she's finding that the front lines are definitely ready and eager for change. And now it's a question of figuring out how to make it happen within the rest of the organization. Enjoy the interview, and I will chat with you briefly at the end. I'm the uh, Strategic Advisor for Citizen Service. I work in the corporate projects group, so we do enterprise projects for the whole government, essentially. My main portfolio is citizen-centered service, and it's part of our larger public service renewal initiative, which is basically to make sure the public service is relevant and modern. One of the reasons they looked to me to come and join this team and work on citizen service is because of my last project was Saskatchewan.ca. And so uh, in 2012, we set out to solve the gov.sk.ca problem. <laughs> uh, it was a huge website, 400,000 pages. It was you know, managed by up to 100 content managers across the government from different uh, disciplines and policy areas and the like. And so it just ended up with no version control for PDFs. Uh, there were over a million documents mm. hosted across the site. Yeah, so it, in terrible shape. And uh, it was also... Um, ugly (laughs) and um, just very low performing in terms of navigation and search and all that stuff. And it wasn't because we had poor infrastructure necessarily. Um, Our search engine was a Google search appliance. So it had the potential to be extremely good. So it was a decentralized approach. Mm -hmm. Nobody was managing it. There was no leadership. There were no standards. There's nothing. So we set out in executive council to make the business case for why we needed to solve gov.sk.ca. And how did you make that business case? Uh, Well, we took two kicks at it. Okay. (laughs) The first kick was more conceptual. Okay. You know, we took a leap of faith that this was the right thing to do, that it would be good for the government, etc. The second time, we had more rigor and more discipline. And that's kind of when I took over. We had two sides of the coin. One, make it less expensive to run a government website. Yes. And two, make it better for the people. Right. The users of the site. 
And we started by canvassing all ministries and government to find out what their experiences were like trying to manage the website and what they'd like to accomplish and what could be better and okay. what their customers wanted and all that kind of stuff. And what sort of stuff did you hear from them? A lot of complaints about technology and infrastructure right. and leadership and standards and all that kind of stuff. So people were most excited about the potential for um, a new website to help them realize their business goals that they had in their various ministries and areas, right? Okay. So, but at the end of the day, it really did come down to that the operation of the site itself could be done more efficiently if it was managed centrally and we had modern uh, software and all that kind of stuff. Right. And um, it would be a benefit to citizens. Okay. And that was a hard task because there's not a lot of technological okay. literacy among government officials. Right. Right. And so, and among um, our political counterparts either. Right. So all they know is that it's complicated, it's expensive, mm -hmm. and it's daunting. So, right. yeah, we had to make it easy for them to understand what the benefit of a, a new digital platform would be. Um, so we focused on the Public Service Renewal Initiative, which was about simplification, benefiting citizens, uh, making processes better, and just showed how it met all those challenges, including making it less expensive. So you're here at a customer experience conference. Are you thinking of your internal customers or the public or both? Uh, we... Uh, so in my new role in doing citizen-centered services, we talk about the vocation of public service and that we're all here to serve the public good and getting back to that calling. Mm -hmm. And so it's certainly um, our external public customers that we're very interested in. But an important piece of that, and especially in terms of employee engagement or motivating right. our um, employees, is remembering that we're all citizens of government as well. Yes. Um, you know, and how would your mother experience this service? How would you like to experience this service? And, um, you know, really tapping into that vocation of I'm here okay. to serve. Interesting. And was that for some of the longer term employees a fairly major cultural shift? I think it's a huge culture shift for the entire organization. Okay. But the biggest divergence that we're seeing is actually that our management, leadership, and executive are acknowledging that frontline staff and people in those areas know more about customers and citizens and empathy for the customer yep. than we do. Right. And saying, let's tap into those folks. Good. Yeah, so it's wonderful. And uh, I think what was interesting is uh, there was some concern organizationally, you know, if we start using this new language, how do we avoid it becoming, you know, is this a flavor of the day or right. that kind of thing? Or you're just changing the language on us again. We're confused. You mm -hmm. know, we have an organization of 12,000 people. Um, but what we found it, through discussions with about 250 public servants about these topics was that uh, they're eager to reconnect with their uh, purpose of serving the citizen mm -hmm. and that they see that as a natural way for them to better understand our corporate strategy around public service and around renewal and all that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's actually the leadership who's on more of the change journey in terms okay. of understanding that. Um, and the employees are ready to go there if we will just set the vision. I suspect uh, particularly frontline employees because they're the ones who've heard all the hassles and frustrations. So they would really get it. And, you know, it can't be fun spending your life 
getting complaints that you can't really solve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're kind of like, it's about time we yeah. change these things to make it easier rather right. than, you know, management thinking, oh, they're going to be, you know, upset that their jobs are changing or right. what have you, right? So how do you tackle a process like that? Mm-hmm. So you want to change the whole approach to make it citizen-centric. Where do you start? Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been having a lot of debate about that. Okay. <laughs> I believe you have to come at it in two ways. One is that you have to set the framework and the foundation for change across the system of government um, by you know, allowing for policies and uh, frameworks and tools to be put in place that people can use any time when they're ready to get on board, right? And to have that, you know, a really strong communications and engagement strategy so that people can come with you, participate and get involved. And then I also think, especially at this stage at the early, you know, start of something, you have to have projects that show the merit of what you're trying to accomplish. So those early adopters, those champions who have a business unit or are about to redesign a policy, who are willing to engage with their customers, involve them in co-design and open government and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing, um, to lead the way and show the benefits, and then it will trickle out from there. Okay. How far have you got so far? Where are you in the process? Uh, we have a philosophical uh, vision and approach that okay. um, our deputy ministers are comfortable with that's within our public service renewal framework. And we have started to engage the employees on the discussion of citizen first and what it means to be a public servant, mm-hmm. which is a huge change because... Um, you know, one of our employees came to one of the chats we had, and he'd worked in the government 35 years. And he said, back when I started, I was so proud to say I'm a civil servant. Mm-hmm. And today, it's not that I'm not proud. It's just that uh, I say, oh, I work for justice, or I work for, you know, people don't orientate themselves necessarily with public service so much as right. the organization as an employer today. Mm-hmm. So how do we get back to where people felt that they were serving the public as part of their role. That's very interesting. I mentioned the chats we had with um, public servants across the piece. Well, one of the groups that came was um, a group of chiefs of staff for ministers. And they get this stuff instantly. Their intuition's right there because they door knock and they right. talk to constituents, right. Right? right? So they assume that the public service is the same way, that we're very much in touch and in tune mm-hmm. with customer needs. And so there's a bit of a disconnect there because, you know, today I think it was the presenter from Indigo who said, when was the last time, have you talked to a customer within yeah. the last week, right? Yeah. Um, I would love to ask that question in some government, <laughs> yeah. you know, meeting rooms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we do lose sight of, um, you know, the actual person that's at the end of whatever business process we're trying to accomplish mm-hmm. in a government context. I remember doing a usability project several years ago for Service Alberta. And the way my company approaches usability, we get a large sample size and it's qualitative as well as quantitative. And it was funny because going into it, the people I was presenting to in government were really afraid that it was going to be really negative feedback. And in this particular case, what we found is the service they were offering was actually people loved it, but no one knew of it. And so it was just, you know, and so it was thrilling to them to actually hear some of the comments, including there were negative ones, but your perceptions even of what you're going to get can be so far off. Mm-hmm. 
We had a great example of that, not in the government, but in um, the city of Regina. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is from when Philippe Leclerc was working for the city of Regina. I think he's moved out east, actually, okay. now. But um, in his role, he was trying to uh, adopt or to push social media into the municipality, right? And people were really afraid that there was going to be all this negative feedback. Yep. But for the first time, once it was launched, you know, the people working on the road crews and things were actually getting positive feedback that they'd never had a channel to receive before. So, and then Philippe had sort of designed a, you know, a way to rate and collect and understand what that information that was coming in was so that he could show, okay, this is a percentage of positive, this is neutral, Mm -hmm. this is negative, and put that in context for them. Now, is your organization looking at using social media at all? And if so, how are you managing that. Yeah, when we were launching Saskatchewan.ca, we were pretty focused on that, but we did have an internal social media expert, and we were actually pretty lucky because he was a real expert. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Before he came on, there was sort of ad hoc evolution of social media in Saskatchewan among the government. So some branches were using it, some weren't, Um, and we just started a government, um, like an overall government Facebook and Twitter about the time that he came on board. Mm. But we were kind of lucky in that we were able to curtail that ad hoc popping up at a fairly early stage before it became out of hand. And so our approach was very much focused on the customer need. So one of the great examples we had was um, advanced education wanted to do a student Facebook and Twitter uh, feed. So we talked to them and said, who would your counterparts being other ministries who also have a student audience oh good question yeah so that and then created that collaboration to have Mm -hmm. a student feed rather than an advanced ed ministry feed for students Mm -hmm. um and what was great was every time i brought that up in a ministry boardroom and said this is a great example of collaboration those people put their hand up and said we have students as an audience too Mm -hmm. so now when they have something they want to put out there they can use the existing feed rather than considering building their own. Exactly. Now that's interesting that you would have separate feeds for a different demographic. Why Why that decision? Uh, because the customer has different needs, right? They don't okay. necessarily want a barrage of all government news. Okay. We have like the softer side of government health, social services, um, education. We have economic stuff. Um, and so... So would each of those areas have their own their own... Not necessarily. It definitely would base on the need of the customer, right? So, for example, outside of the realm of portfolios or demographics, uh, public safety is mm-hmm. an interesting one, right? So you could have anything on there from flooding to the um, fires in the north to, I don't know, uh, snow is coming, weather disaster related to highway hotline, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it could be topical. It could be based on a demographic. could be based on a, like health, for example. Mm-hmm. So if we ha- saw that that customer need, then we could turn it into something that maybe there's demand for. So how would you control that? I could see that getting out of hand again very quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, We actually controlled social media um, in terms of approval for creation of the feeds centrally, but we didn't control the content as it was running on a daily basis. Our philosophy, which may not, you know, again, be totally consistent with political philosophy on it, was that you needed to trust 
the local people who are working on the social media to make the right decisions and run it appropriately um, within their own context. So, and did you give them any special training? or? Um, in some cases, I think it depends on who the ministry was proposing to staff it, and that was a big <laughs> that was a big part of whether we approved it or not, right? Okay. To make sure that it was properly staffed and had the right expertise. And um, sometimes a summer student is the perfect person to run it because they actually know more about it than we do. Other times that's not, (laughs) you know, um, uh, typically it's not the summer student who should run it. Well, they often don't have the level of judgment and experience, so they may get how to chat on social media, but it's not all there is to it. We had one summer student who's a law um, student and, you know, had grown up in digital and stuff. And he, I think, is the anomaly of, you know, somebody who you could you know, have working on your social media stuff without too much uh, right. risk. But, yeah. yeah, for the most part, I agree that um, people, social media is a risky area because yes. just because you use it in your personal life doesn't mean you're an expert. And I think that's kind of evolved into a, yeah. a big market for social media. One of the things that I've noticed in government social media accounts is there's a tendency for it really to be one way, government talking to public. There's not typically a lot of interaction. What do you see? Yeah, that was one of the things that our internal experts struggled with, too. Mm -hmm. Like, don't just post your news releases Mm -hmm. and, you know, and I think that um, it's the authenticity of the... the voice of the person who's posting that, that makes a big difference. And that's where I would go back to the city of Regina and the municipalities having an excellent two-way engagement on their Facebook page. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, I would probably, I would credit Philippe with this. Um, He, they actually use their call center to run and operationalize their Facebook. And so for example, um, I say, Oh, the lights are out at Victoria Avenue and, Let's make sure I'm an Arcola. <laughs> it's a real intersection. Yeah. Um, they'll actually say, oh, thanks for letting us know we're sending a crew out. So now if anyone's following, they can see, okay, I don't need to mm-hmm. acknowledge this. But the call center has handled that uh, in real time. So they have feedback immediately that, okay, we're going to address this issue. Right. So it's a much more... It's just like another channel for service and communication and inquiries and all kinds of things. Uh, we tried to do that a little bit with the government social media, especially on the main feeds. Our premier is extremely popular on Twitter. I think he has more than 40,000 really? followers. Wow. Yeah. And um, one of the things that sparked the creation of um, our government Twitter was that he, w- because he was so accessible on there, he would get questions that the public service should be answering. Like, right. where's this form or that yeah. kind of stuff. So he needed a way to route those questions so they could be answered mm-hmm. by the person who knew where the form was and that kind of thing. Right. Right. Um, and so, uh, great intention for that. Um, I haven't looked recently to see what the balance of two-way engagement or inquiry that's happening on there is today. Um, but I think that whether or not government is going, wants it to evolve that way, it just will because people are going to ask the questions on there. Absolutely. Yeah. Highway Hotline is a great example of that because it's all about these. This is the official answer about the road conditions that we are legally able to say, right? <laughs> you know, you have public people are going on there saying, saying, "Nah, it's like this or it's like that." You know, so um, how do you respond to those questions in that context now? So often the response is encouraging conversation among the public. 
Right. So it doesn't have to come from you directly, but you become the gathering spot right. where people, people trust can discuss their peers. It. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. There's a wonderful um, app, I don't know if you've heard about it, that was put out originally by the town of Lewisham in hmm. England. And it was called I Love Lewisham, and it was a phone app. Oh, I haven't heard about this. It was very cool, actually, something you might want to look at. It. So it's this phone app where they encourage citizens to contact them on social media if they saw a problem in the city. So you could take a photo and send that. Uh, of course, with your phone, it would detect exactly where it was. So people would, you know, show... I think originally it was because they were concerned about uh, graffiti. So people were sending in graffiti oh. reports, and that way it got spotted and fixed faster. But then it was overflowing garbage cans or whatever it was. Because a lot of these things, people will get annoyed at the city or the government for not doing anything, but often the government doesn't even know. Right. And so finding using that as a way to mobilize and engage the public, I think has a lot of potential as a way to get the public reengaged in the process of government altogether. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah. um, there's a TED Talk that came out a few weeks ago um, called about the worst parking spots in the city. Did oh, you yeah? catch I'll that one? I'll have to look for that. Yeah, yeah I definitely do. It's um, City of New York, and okay. it's about um, citizens using data. Yeah. And uh, essentially what this guy did was he got all the information about the parking spots and which ones were getting the most tickets. And then he looked at the, he went in person to see the two spots that were paying the most money. And I can't quite remember the exact figure, but I think these two spots were pulling in like 60 grand a year for the city. <laughs> So, uh, anyway, it turns out there's a hidden fire hydrant in both spots. And so the city has painted that these are valid spots, but the police come by and they see, right. okay, so they're giving a ticket, so they disagree. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so he took, he sent the information to the city, and, you know, when I tell this story, a lot of people think, oh, that city, they're clearly trying to, you know, take advantage of people by having these spots. Mm-hmm. And I always say, I bet they had no clue that yeah. those spots were causing all the... They don't use their data like that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, he sent the information to the city, and sure enough, they painted the spots as no parking right after they heard from him. Right. So I think that's a, a great example of how democracy is evolving and how citizens are going to become involved in government and influence government, whether not government is participating or not really right now i guess the challenge and the fear that some in government would have as some in companies have is if we become too accessible people will be raising too many problems and it'll take too many resources to fix them mm-hmm. what are your comments on that well our in saskatchewan we've been using um lean or continuous improvement quite a bit in um, the health sector and uh, across executive government mm-hmm. and one uh, in our health sector, actually, you um, a lean event is cancelled if a patient or a family isn't there to participate and provide that customer point of view. Interesting. Yeah, and so uh, we're trying to get more of that engagement on the executive government side because yeah. uh, it's so beneficial. But one of the pieces of feedback that we get, especially from executives who participate and hear what the customers have to say, is that, first of all, not only do, does the government learn something that they never would learn if that person wasn't there, yeah. but the people who participate also have a new appreciation for what government is dealing with and trying to address something. The other main thing that came out of this was that um, people don't want the world, right? Mm-hmm. They're satisfied if they 
we're able to be heard, yeah. participate, and see something made better. Yeah. Um, and quite often in lean situations and in healthcare, people might have been motivated to participate because of terrible experiences that they may have had in their own lives. And so when you have people who've been in those experiences and they still don't want the world, you know, I think it really shows that, um, you know, you need to give citizens enough credit for understanding the context that we're all working in. Mm -hmm. And if we're all aiming at the same thing, trying to improve things for them, uh, then I think that can create a lot of positive that's an excellent point. I mean, when I think of the healthcare situation, you know, the things that drive people crazy are reasonable things. It's not like anyone is expecting they're going to be treated like they're in a five-star hotel when they're in a hospital. But they are expecting a certain minimum level of care. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Even in terms of complaints from customers, right? If they feel that the process was fair and they're yes. satisfied by you know, what you were able to do to help them. It may not be what they wanted at the end of the day, but it's better than, you know, being told the policy says this or, you know, sorry, I can't do anything. One of the things that struck me about what she had to say was how similar it was to what Reginald Chapman had to say in episode 16, which you can find at frankreactions.com forward slash 16, about how aligning your goals with the goals of each of the individual departments is a way to get them to move forward on your customer experience initiative. And she's taking very much a similar approach within the government. Another theme that we've heard before is the value of having small pilot projects, small little successes that can win others over to the larger goals. I also liked her concept that by using, well, their their approach to lean methodology, where they're insisting that in any time you're looking at changing a process, there has to be an end user, an end customer involved, gives not only the internal people a greater appreciation of customer needs, but also gives customers a greater understanding of government constraints. I thought that was a really interesting point. And my favorite quote from the whole interview, I think, was when she commented that People don't want the world. They're satisfied just if they're able to participate, to be heard, and to see something made better. Words for you to think about as you enjoy your week. Next week, I am headed off to beautiful Coronado, which is basically in San Diego, California, where I will be participating in the Insight Exchange put on by the Customer Experience Professionals Association. So if you're going to be down there, give me a shout at Tema Frank is my Twitter handle or send me an email, Tema, T-E-M as in marketing, A, at frankreactions.com. And if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, you might want to do so either on iTunes, where I'd love it if you'd leave a review, please, or on Stitcher, same thing. If that's where you listen, I'd love it if you'd leave a review there. Also, I, I told you in the last episode that I was going to start taking Cliff Ravenscraft's idea of reaching out individually to people who subscribe to my newsletter to learn more about them. And I'm happy to report that I've begun doing that and I'm getting some really wonderful feedback. It feels so good as a podcaster or author to hear from the people whose lives your thoughts are affecting. I really, really value feedback. So hopefully you'll be able to take some time and give me some. Also, if you'd like to record your comments about the podcast, feel free to dial toll-free 1-866-544-9262. That's 1-866-544-9262. 
And if you include information about your business in your comments, I would be happy to play that on air. After the customer insight exchange, I will be headed to Chicago and Toronto, Chicago for the B2B online conference. And if you're interested in that and haven't registered, use the discount code B2B, the number two. So B2B 15 franc, and you'll get a 25% discount. So those are all capital letters, B2B 15 franc. After a couple of days there, I'll be headed up to Toronto again for Etail Canada, which also has a 25% discount for my listeners. So for that one, use Etail CA 15 franc. Again, all capital letters. So I really hope that I'll get to see you at one of those events. And in the meantime, as I say, feel free to reach out anytime and check back again next week for the next episode of Frank Reactions. Bye. Bye.